My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast and I'll be continuing the Criterion Roundup with a look at October's releases. Okay, so first up was spine number 628, The Forgiveness of Blood. Modern day Albania and in the second decade of the 21st century and in one small village comes the story of a family feud with its politics unchanged in centuries. Nick is the oldest son of a household aged 17, popular at school and in love with one of his classmates. Rudina is his 15 year old sister, a pupil at the same school, and is gifted and seemingly may have the wherewithal to get out of the village they live in and make something of herself in life. Matters are complicated when one day their father, doing his grocery runs with the family horse, attempts to cross land of a local rival, a journey he has made since every day since he can remember. His adversary refuses him permission and the pair and indeed family have a long history and the feud has been simmering for many years. So Nick and Rudina's father returns with their uncle and kill the man. The deceased man's family demand vengeance. Nick and his younger brother Dren are deemed worthy of death for their father's crime and cannot leave the house for fear of being killed. With their father fled, Rudina must take over the family business of delivering bread to the local community. Both Nick and Rudina are modern young people. Their world consists of worrying about how many minutes they have on their mobile phones and hanging out with friends. Suddenly, the world of the canon, or Albania honour system dating back hundreds of years, drags them into a feud that will have huge repercussions for them both. Director Joshua Marston's previous film, 2004's Maria Full of Grace, was one of the standouts of that year. It's a shame it has taken him so long to make a follow-up. The Forgiveness of Blood was written with Amidon Matari winning the pair The Silver Bear at the Berlin Film Festival. Filmed entirely in Albania and in Albanian, it is a stark reminder in many respects of just how little has changed in some corners of European society. Albania, despite its recent membership of NATO, is a country still thought of in many negative terms, especially in terms of kind of immigration into this country. And many people look at anyone who seems from Eastern Europe and instantly makes the assumption that they are either Kosovan or Albanian. It's a hugely insulting way of looking at people and that it certainly isn't true if you were to look at the kind of the statistics in relating to immigration from foreign countries and there's also this kind of image that Albania is a very kind of backward country and with its kind of like horses and carts and certainly you know, we kind of do seem that but in the film but it's certainly a, a, a mode of transport that's still very popular there but Eastern Europe on the whole is often seen in quite derogatory terms by the apparently uh, civilised western side of Europe and I think it's an incredibly harsh thing because these countries in Eastern Europe, I think, suffered tremendously under the kind of the communist years. And Albania was one of those which was really kind of dragged economically through the mire. I mean, it was a kind of a Stalinist type of a society. And I mean, it has some kind of truly bizarre, much of the country's kind of meagre resources were squandered on 
public projects such as a huge um, bunker system that was built all over Albanium. And um, I do sort of beseech you really to kind of check these out on Google because they are kind of quite incredible um, little constructions. But they, you know, these dotted up all over the landscape and cost a great amount of the GDP. And of course, it's the kind of the people and the society that suffer in these types of situations. And I think the, the what often happens in these types of examples is that we kind of don't really look at the people of these countries as being people. We look at them as kind of in more kind of statistical terms. And I think that's one of the reasons why I found The Forgiveness of Blood such an interesting piece of work. Where the film is able to draw you in is the two very different narrative strands of Nick and Rudina. Nick becomes imprisoned by the feud. The house kind of becomes like a tormentor at at odds with modernity that has swept him and his friends up. In one scene, he defaces a wall out of frustration. He makes some weights so he can kind of build his muscles up so he can impress his love who's on the outside. He stands by and watches the elders try and sort the problems out, yet they are might as well be from a completely different time. The cruelty of the feud is apparent. He is neither the perpetrator of the crime or had any part in it. Yet he and his brother are marked legitimate targets because to kill them will apparently right the perceived wrong. As the film goes on, we hear that a justice of sorts has been done. His uncle, the man who did the killing, has been sentenced to 18 years in prison. Yet the very fact that his father has not gone to prison is enough to condemn him to death. Nick is essentially the future of his country. He harbours a desire to start his own internet cafe in the local village to move away from the life of the horse-drawn carriage and near-subsistence living. Their house is a perfect metaphor. One story of it has yet to be built. The foundation and the walls are there, but in all likelihood it will never be finished. The old and new are locked in a struggle that will never quite be resolved. It's easy to pity Nick. His downfall is simple desire, not in the grand scheme, but in a real and measured way. The feud forces him into manhood. He must become the alpha male the family needs. He wields a gun against an enemy of which he must hate on the basis of a dark feud of which his death will somehow resolve. Rudina on the other hand faces another battle. She must become the family earner. Along with the half lame horse she has to sell bread and anything else she can to keep the family above water. Women by the way are deemed not fair game in these feuds. They're allowed to kind of come and go as they please. Whereas his father just sold Whereas her father just sold bread, she branches out into cigarettes, even travelling to the local town to barter for more. What is so utterly tragic about the film is how gender expectation effectively ruins Nick and Rudina's lives. Neither want what is happening to them. Rudina, with a kind of homemade horse box, cuts a pathetic sight selling bread to people because that is how it has been done for years. Nick and Rudina are the victims of modernity, or to be precise, the lack of it. The EU, for all its efforts to homogenise Europe, still cannot influence some areas, namely tradition. It would be easy to simply condemn the village, yet Martin and Matthias seem to know that we know that this is all very wrong. Neither Nick and Rudima rage at their circumstance, they simply get on with it, and it's perhaps the sombre acceptance that makes the film so sad. This is a world of mobiles and internet cafes, but one still anchored to the unbelievable cruelty of ancient backward ways. Now, I think it's kind of one of those things where you can a reluctance sometimes to pass judgment on other cultures because we have this sort of 
I, I think personally it comes from a, certainly from the kind of the British perspective of a kind of liberal guilt towards kind of imperialism and that, and the kind of like the empiric ways of old. But, you know, I, I, I have no sort of um, qualms about saying that other societies are fundamentally backward. And, and it's quite ironic, actually, because I'm actually reading a book at the moment by the author Sam Harrison, which she talks about these kind of Albanian blood flutes. And they they're, they're horrendous, you know. They they there is you, you can't sit there and say, well, that's that's their way, and you know that's sort of um, you know we ha- we have to respect the fact that in that country those types of things happen. You know, there are people who effectively cannot leave their house for the rest of their life as a result of these, and awful things happen. You know, and innocent well, of course, innocent people die, but you know houses get shut up, and you know it, it doesn't matter that the fact that you know women are, are sort of off limits, as it were, they still end up being killed. It's a disgusting horrific act and I, I do really wish that the sort of um, the central European power would do more to kind of stop this or apply pressures on countries to make it happen but but going back to the, the film as a whole I think Marston's um, direction is what we can best be described as workmanlike now this is not exactly the most strikingly visual film I've ever seen yet it is very functional this is a character driven piece first and foremost it has undercurrents of a slow burning thriller. A bullet one night fire is fired into the house and every time Nick goes on the roof you're waiting for the sound of gunfire to split through the soundtrack. Marston is not trying to kind of replicate straw dogs here and I think this is a film where the effects of violence have very very real consequences and I don't think he wants to kind of downplay those by having this sort of massive shootouts i think perhaps anyone who might be expecting this to kind of turn into kind of like an an alamo like showdown might find themselves a little bit let down overall also the performances are superb tristan halliger as nick and cindy lessey as rudina are both absolutely superb yet for all its good points the forgiveness of bluff did rather seem a little labored with some scenes lacking both genuine reason for being there or indeed any dramatic purpose the effect was to nullify the inherent drama and tension of the film. I felt I wanted more from certain aspects of the story in lieu of some of the more seemingly trivial moments, such as when Rudina goes to the local town to buy cigarettes. And I did at times feel that my attention was wandering when I perhaps felt I should have been slightly more gripped by it. Overall, however, Forgiveness of Blood is a solid film, if not overly remarkable. Marston should certainly make more films however it's interesting to me that an American filmmaker um, seems so comfortable making films outside of the US and I often think that kind of foreign eyes in a country are a good way of shining light into that corner of the world and that's certainly what I thought has happened with the forgiveness of blood. I um, just want to make a point as well actually from now on I used to buy um I used to kind of mix up my criterion purchases between DVD and Blu-ray and I've decided to go all Blu-ray now I think it's it's got to the point where I've kind of my criterion I think buying is is too important I think to kind of miss the opportunity to buy these films on Blu-ray and I did pick up the Blu-ray of this one and um, it was overall it's not the most it's not the prettiest of film anyway but it was a very solid transfer I was really impressed with the soundtrack however actually yeah although there was no score I did think it was quite an atmospheric um, surround sound mix there's a Audio commentary with uh, John Joshua Marston, which I thought was quite interesting, and a couple of other um, on-set interviews, which are kind of were, were fairly kind of tawdry to be honest. With. I didn't really kind of get into that much, but overall, um, a a very solid Criterion package. Okay, so next up was spine number six two nine, which is John Schlesinger's nineteen seventy one film Sunday Bloody Sunday.
free to do what we want. Other people often do what they don't want to do at all. A new film from the Academy Award-winning director of Midnight Cowboy, Sunday, Bloody Sunday. In 1969, Midnight Cowboy became the first R-rated film to win Best Picture at the Oscars. Like many directors fresh off the Oscars success, John Sedgwick would have had the veritable cinematic world at his feet. And no doubt the offers would have come fast and furious to direct a raft of Hollywood projects. Instead, the British-born Sedgwick would return to England with his 1971 follow-up, Sunday Bloody Sunday. For what I would consider, having seen almost all of his films, his finest work and also his most personal. The first film I saw of his was Darling, a film that would win Julie Christie Best Actress at the Oscars, and Far From the Madding Crowd in 1967, in my mind the best adaption of Thomas Hardy's novels and his first collaboration with star of Sunday Bloody Sunday, Peter Finch. Of course you can't forget Marathon Man for that teeth scene, and he is a director whose work is varied, and I would contest he is a filmmaker who deserves to be far more revered by the cinema masses. It was 1981's Honky Tonk Freeway that effectively ended his Hollywood career. Indeed, like so many directors of that golden period, it seems a colossal flop in the early 80s was almost obligatory and indeed a tragic epitaph to one's career. Written by Penelope Gillett, an English-born novelist and film critic, the story focuses on a young woman called Alex, played by Glenda Jackson. Alex and her boyfriend Bob, played by Murray Head. And the couple at first appear to be in love, yet with a slight elephant in the room between them. Bob has someone else in his life, an old Jewish doctor called Daniel, played by Peter Finch. Alex and Daniel are aware of each other and actually know each other through mutual friends. But Bob is considering leaving England to go and work in America, yet Alex and Daniel cannot bring themselves to pressure him one way or the other for fear of losing him for good. Sunday Bloody Sunday is one of those films that took me a while to work out what it was actually about. Now, kind of first impressions when you watch films that you can normally kind of define the character types fairly easily. Well, certainly in the vast majority of films out there. Something like Star Wars, for example, I think it's fairly obvious that as soon as, uh, well, within the first five minutes, that Darth Vader might not be the nicest person in the galaxy. But Sunday Bloody Sunday does not work within these kind of typical, clearly defined character frameworks. We are naturally poised to position with Alex. She gets more screen time. But Daniel is also just as sympathetic, a kind, considerate, caring man. Bob too is neither dubious or deceitful, he is a little callous with his various love's emotions, but the inherent drama of the film comes in how much we really care for all the characters we are seeing. We don't want Alex or Daniel to end up unhappy, yet the film is not about one of them walking off happily into the sunset. It is in fact a story of isolation and the pressures of living in a world of expectations. Daniel is Jewish, he is also a doctor, a person who people look up to and have certain expectations. He is not openly gay, yet we do know from a scene that he meets another man that he has been promiscuous in the past. Yet casual liaisons are not what he is after. This is a man who wants and desires long-term companionship. Alex is also something of a lost soul. From a rich family, she has a decent job as a recruitment consultant and on occasion sleeps with her clients. Her life is about not wanting what others have, but not knowing what she actually wants. In the beginning of the film, she and Bob look after some friend's kids for the weekend. The kids are ultra-modern in the worst possible way, knowing and self-aware they even smoke pot their parents' pot. 
What is clear is that Alex is only an interloper into these types of situations. An awkward dinner with her mother and father, with the mother being played by Peggy Ashcroft, reveals that she has an ex-husband who still cares for her deeply. Alex is simply not the conformity type. Paradoxically, she's probably best suited to Daniel in this respect. It's hard what to really kind of read into all of this. John Sledger was a homosexual and, as I understand, a great deal of the film is quite autobiographical. My interpretation of it is that Sunday Bloody Sunday is a critique of the more idealistic notions of free love and promiscuity. He doesn't offer a preference as to who Bob should end up with, Alex or Daniel, but what it does do is show how detrimental this arrangement is to the innocent parties, i.e. Alex and Daniel. In one brilliant scene, Alex and Daniel actually pass each other by, driving past Bob's house to make sure he's actually in and not round the other persons, having both had suspicions and indeed fear that he might be with the other person. The fact they both know the other one exists is by the by, it's the fact they can't bear the fact he is not with them that hurts them so much. For anyone who's never been consumed by that kind of jealousy, it's a very real, honest moment. We do do things that seem kind of basically quite strange and stupid, yet at the time they make perfect sense to us. And it's only with the kind of passage of time that we realise that we would kind of cringe or I'd like to go back to ourselves and give them a good shake. But the film's conclusion offers no real long-term solution or indeed resolution. As a rule of film, I hate it when actors break the fourth wall. But with Sunday Blade Sunday, I will make an exception as Daniel addresses the camera directly at the end of the film. It is a brutal, honest truth and raw emotion that transcends the normal modes of cinema. One of the reasons why I think the characters are so endearing and one of the strongest reasons why the film works so well is that the performances are absolutely incredible all round. Murray Head, who, as far as I'm concerned, I don't think he went on to do a great deal after this, is is good as Bob because you, you you do although he is kind of mucking these people around he doesn't seem to be an arsehole he's quite dedicated to both of them in a strange way and he certainly kind of goes out of his way to try and make them feel happy but Glenda Jackson as Alex was it's incredible really I think you know I, I, he's obviously a director who I think having seen his work he he tends to be able to get the best out of his actors especially females I mean Judy Christie who was also in Far From Merlin Crowd she gives that that the, I can't remember the name of the um, character she plays in that, but it's an, it could have been an extremely annoying character. Well, it is an annoying character to an extent, and she kind of she just about nails it. I think in that film, it's one of the reasons why I like it so much. And also in Darling, she was pretty incredible. But Glenda Jackson is really just so believable as Alex, and I think it, there's little moments which that kind of really kind of show her character so well, like this bit where she kind of she hits an ashtray over her carpet and uh, rather than kind of clear it up, she just kind of smears the ash into the carpet with her foot. I mean, I know I've done that. And it's, it's a kind of a moment really where, you know, it probably doesn't really need to be in the film, but it's one of those kind of little kind of brilliant character moments that sort of make kind of endear the audience to her. But I think really the, the, the performance that impressed me most in this was Peter Finch's because he's so, it's network, I suppose, which is the one that everyone kind of goes crazy over. But this is, I think, one of the finest performances that I've ever seen in a film. I, it's, I don't know if I could say it's my favourite thing. If I was to say sort of what's my favourite all-time performance, I'd probably go with George C. Scott in Patton. But this was one of the most surprising. And it was, it was dead weird because obviously I knew Peter Finch was in it. But as soon as I kind of saw his character, it, it was just like incredible to see how much he owns the role. And... Uh, 
you know, how he didn't kind of end up with an Oscar for this is beyond me. Perhaps it was because the character was a slightly risque. I don't know, perhaps you know, this is the early 70s, I should imagine, kind of society kind of got kind of used to um, homosexuality, I guess. But perhaps it was a little bit too early to kind of be showing two men kissing in a film. I don't know. But certainly I, I, I think it's an incredible um, performance from the decade and one which I think should be kind of um, celebrated a lot more. Also, I think John Sledgen's well direction in the film is quite sublime. He shoots with such fluidity and subtlety. He never kind of interferes or becomes a distraction. And that's exactly what you should do for this type of material. This is about people and them, you know, kind of just going about their daily lives. And you don't need to kind of get too kind of stuck in there or kind of choppy with the editing or kind of try crazy angles. I think Sledgen just gets it quite right. He knows, I suppose it must come through when you have that much confidence in the script that you can just get in there and film, you know, I suppose workmanlike might be a word for it, but, you know, when the script's that good, it kind of directs itself, and I certainly think that's the case with this. Um, Billy Williams, who was the director of photography as well, is also worth a note because this film, for the most part, looks like it was filmed at my favourite time of year, which is kind of autumn kind of going into winter. You know, I it's really bizarre because I love the weather when it's freezing. You know, it's, it's just getting nice and freezing here in Britain at the moment. And, um, no, I love it when I kind of... I was walking to Manchester Town Centre this morning and um, where I kind of walk, I go along the canal and it's like... The, I love it when the sun kind of details never gets high up in the sky and there's that kind of Christmas to everything. And it looks like Sunday Bloody Sunday was filmed around this time and it has this kind of autumnal colour palette to it, which I really liked. Um, it is also, and I think... Um, Having seen, you know, obviously own most of the blue, the Blu-rays that have come out from Criterion this year, this one was possibly the best-looking one I've seen all year. I, I, I know it's on Blu-ray.com. I think it got something like four and a half stars out of five, and I, I, I would have said it was, it was a bang on five out of five. I just think it's, it looks like it, it was filmed yesterday, and of course, you know, they haven't done the, um, well, you know, as by, I suppose it's a kind of a default statement with Criterion. They haven't interfered with the kind of like digital noise reduction or anything like that. It looks, it literally looked like I had a film being projected onto my television. It was an absolutely wonderful um, cinematic experience. You know, the film was released to um, universal kind of critical acclaim. And I, I really can't see a film from... I think perhaps it was probably too early to give Sledgenger another Oscar, but I certainly think this film um, deserves to be kind of regarded as as one of the all-time greats. I, I go so far as to say I think it's that good. And I think the thing about kind of films when they're so personal, often they can sometimes bring out the worst in directors, and sometimes they obviously bring out the best, and I think this is certainly one of the cases of the latter. And I, it, was, it was strange because as the film ended, I sort of—I'd never seen it before before I watched this—and I sort of sat there and I thought to myself, yeah, "God, I love the, the films of the '70s." You know, this was another United Artists production as well, and um, I'd love to kind of—I might even do it one day, which is to do a kind of a, a potted history of that studio because I certainly think it has a, a, a kind of a mine of interesting films to look at. But overall, Sunday Bloody Sunday, um, an absolute joy, and one of the the biggest surprises of the year for me, certainly from Criterion. Paramount Pictures presents. Hey, let's make love. Mia Farrow. 
co-starring John Cassavetti. Let's have a baby. Oh, honey, for God's sakes, don't cry, I'm all right? Okay, so of course, being from October, we have to have a horror film, and that would be Spy Number 630, which would be Roman Polanski's 1968 film, Rosemary's Baby. Now, I suppose there's one thing to kind of get out of the way when you talk about Roman Polanski, which is, it's kind of a question I've I've sort of asked myself, is that, do I feel a little bit uncomfortable liking Roman Polanski films? And quite ironically or kind of coincidentally or whatever as i was um, preparing this episode i've actually been f- uh, finished reading a book about kind of censorship and one of the um, chapters was on libel cases of which roman polanski actually sued and won in the the british courts and the the british courts are bollocks when it comes to things like that he actually he actually sued vogue magazine for libel for writing it i wrote an article about him that said when he was in a bar in new york he used to kind of um, rub his hands along girls' thighs and stuff like that. And it amazed me because Roman Polanski actually sued him for damages for um, defamation of his character. And then it kind of went on, this book actually went on to quite gruesome details as to how he sodomized a young girl and was, well, he is a convicted child rapist. And I thought, Christ, how could this person actually think that his kind of character was being solid all these years on? You know, the guy is... Um, a, a pretty despicable person, I think, in many respects. And I know he obviously had an awful thing that happened to his wife, but I still don't think it's any excuse to do what he did. And sometimes I've, I've spoken to a few people, they kind of, uh, The Ghost was one of my favourite films um, from a couple of years ago. And I, I said, that's a brilliant film. They said, oh, well, I won't watch it because it's a Polanski film. And I sort of said, well, you know, I know, and I know, I know the kind of what they mean. It, it is annoying, you know, this guy did commit child rape and has gone on to have a kind of a still a massively successful career and probably be incredibly wealthy to boot. Um, it's a bit of a hard one to follow, but I think sometimes, you know, it, it, his films are simply too good to ignore, I think, to an extent. And um, certainly, I the, the thing I do sort of, I'm quite conscious of, especially when I'm about to go and watch Rosemary's Baby, was, um, you know, was I kind of looking for kind of subtext that were kind of weren't really there or, you know, kind of portents for what was to follow. But, you know, whatever, I, I, I think um, going back into uh, Rosemary's Baby, it was um, certainly... I have haven't seen the film for quite a long time and I, in that kind of gap I've watched what 
there's part of what there's something about the, the Polanski films and Rosemary's Babies is considered to be kind of second on what was unofficially known as the apartment trilogy with the first being Repulsion which is spine number 483 in the Criterion Collection which is a truly unnerving film if ever there was one and the third The Tenant which I actually watched a few months ago in which Polanski takes the lead role in another extremely bizarre funny and frankly quite disturbing film that I urge you to seek out but certainly Rosemary's Baby is the most well-known of those three. Its producer, William Castle, was better known for his B-movies and as a director himself would often employ a variety of gimmicks to entice audiences from giving out life insurance certificates to audience of macabre or to stopping his films before their climax to conduct a poll amongst the audience to see how the character should be punished, as in his film Mr Sardonicus. It's a pity he's not around today. The amount of press-the-red button shit on TV would have been manna from heaven for someone this inclined he had originally wanted to direct the film but wisely paramount studios went wanted something a little bit more edgy so enter polanski with a budget of three million this was polanski's first film in hollywood and of course we have to thank paramount boss robert evans originally he was gonna direct downhill racer which is Criterion 494 by the way another film i really enjoyed but when evans gave roman polanski ira levin's novel Polanski decided he was going to write and direct the project himself. Starring Mira Farrow and John Cassavetes as her husband Guy, the pair are a newlywed couple who move into a large apartment in Manhattan. Guy is an actor whose career is going okay, were it not for the losing out of parts here and there that was beginning to knock his confidence. Rosemary is a dedicated and loving wife who simply wants him to do well. The pair are introduced to Minnie and Roman, played by Ruth Gordon and Sidney Blackmar, respectively, who take a shine to the young couple. Rosemary and Guy decide to have a baby, which also coincides with Guy spending a great deal of time with Minnie and Roman. Nature takes its course and Rosemary becomes pregnant, and suddenly Guy's career picks up. But something is very wrong. Rosemary is in near constant pain and Minnie and Roman won't leave her alone. And why does Guy seem so blasé about the whole thing? Well, the answer is simple. Minnie and Roman are in fact devil worships in contact with the Dark One, and Satan has a trade for Guy. Let him impregnate Rosemary, and Guy will have a huge career. Fair trade? Well, that's up for you to decide. So, I've seen Rosemary's Baby several times. First at university, second when I was kind of at home a few years ago, and this time it had a far deeper and thoroughly disturbing impact on me. I am currently experiencing one of, I suppose, my friends are having the kind of the baby boom period. We went through the kind of the marriage phase a few years ago and now suddenly everyone's having kids. Now, this past May, my girlfriend and I found out we were expecting a child on, I think it was the, sorry, it was a Saturday in May. And then by the following Wednesday, she had actually had a miscarriage. Now, between the kind of the Saturday and the Wednesday, obviously it was kind of a bit of a shock to the system that I was thought I was going to be, could become a father. And I was thinking about what kind of being a dad was going to entail. And I could kind of, when I was watching the film, I could kind of totally empathise with what kind of Guy and Rosemary do, which you kind of, it, I won't get too technical, but you kind of work out when um, nature's going to be most conducive for making babies and you kind of mark it up and stuff like that. And it does become a bit of a kind of chore, to be brutally honest with you. And it was strange when I was watching it because I remember kind of thinking back to um, when we were trying and that kind of sense of kind of excitement and kind of nervousness that goes through you when you when you are trying. And it dawned on me that 
And by the way, just to kind of clarify as well, we were kind of when we did when she found out she was pregnant, we only found like two weeks or something like that. We weren't sort of you know um, six months down the line, which would have been far more traumatic. And to be honest with you, we're both kind of quite, um, uh, I suppose, f- philosophical about it, which was just a collection of cells, really. You know, we're both kind of quite. Um, I suppose not harsh, but kind of realistic in that kind of perspective. So it wasn't kind of I, the reason I can talk about it wasn't particularly a disturbing thing. It wasn't very really pleasant for her, obviously. But anyway, we were able to move on. But as I kind of sat there watching the film, I'm sat there watching, and I suddenly thought, God, I can't believe how evil Guy is. I just thought, what an absolute total bastard. Because you know, even I think in those early days, I was sort of thinking, you know, well, God, I can't wait to sort of be a father and kind of how I'm going to go about it. You know, I just want to do the best for my child and all this kind of stuff. And you watch this guy who was, and the other thing, it's not like he's letting his best friend sleep with Rosemary. Do you know what I mean? It's, like, it's the fucking devil. You know, and, and then you sort of watch John Casavetti's performance and it's this kind of like joking, kind of carefree type attitude. Quite kind of, you know, callous towards her when she does get pregnant and his career starts taking off because he sort of just sort of begins to ignore her and I generally think that when you watch the film that he, he does really care about her I just think he's gone like sort of oh do you know what fuck it yeah yeah you can have my wife uh, Satan and then you know oh it'll be all right she gets what she wants I get what I want everyone's a winner and I just sort of sat there and I was, I was thinking well is this kind of like kind of a metaphor really because there's that sort of thing isn't it where we sort of say you know selling your soul to the devil I mean I've got a friend who is ridiculously rich and you know lives in a fantastic house drives a lovely car and all that kind of stuff but you sort of know you know you sort of know that he's he's you know had to you know kiss people's asses who are complete wankers and has to kind of you know suck up to people he probably wants to punch in the face and i just sort of think to myself i could never do that but some people can and in a sense it is that kind of selling yourself to the devil i suppose but you know trying to reconcile his action with anything other than kind of pure greed and selfishness is near on impossible guy has committed one of the most heinous acts imaginable and his, his kind of calluses knows no bounds yet and what i think polanski does in this film is that he kind of kind of violates all the kind of safety nets that we have in society you would think that the kind of your, your partner your wife whatever is someone who you can you know trust implicitly or, you know, just, you know, you're definitely going to try and look out for each other. But instead, you know, this is a kind of marriage that's ending with the the groom allowing the devil to rape his his, his wife. And then, you know, you know, friendship as well, you know, because Minnie and kind of Roman do become kind of friends. You know, like the double crossing of them, you sort of think, you know, you're friends, you know, they're there for you to kind of see you through. And also the kind of the house itself, because although there's nothing kind of supernatural going on in the apartment, so... It is this kind of idea that there is nowhere safe for Rosemary to hide. She has no protection from anything around her. Even when she kind of goes to the doctor, she kind of gets sold out. And, you know, the whole pregnancy as well, you know, it's supposed to be a time of joy. You know, that, that due day moment, you know, is, is something that you, you, you look forward to. Instead, this whole thing becomes just pure terror for Rosemary. And imagining the, the the film that way the, the the film kind of plays it straight there are no kind of like moving objects or kind of voices calling out you know there's no kind of thunderstorms or anything like that and Polanski I think has always been very adept at con- conjuring fear largely out of nothing and the best example I can give that is the scene in the ghost where uh Ewan McGregor's in his in a uh, hotel room and there's just a knock at the door and it's literally you shit yourself. And it, it, it's a brilliant little moment, but it's just like it comes out of nowhere. And I always think he's been really kind of adept at just kind of just warping kind of what's around us and making it you, 
apparent safety quite terrifying. But as the kind of the due date kind of begins to approach, the fear and the mystery going on in the film simply grows even more. But what kind of ending do we want to the film? That was another thing I was asking myself during the course of its running time, because herein lies, I think, an even more sinister twist. If she's wrong about what she thinks is happening to her, Rosemary has kind of been kind of daft all along. She just wants to do best for what is for her child. If she is correct, however, she is in fact carrying the spawn of Satan. On the one hand, if there is nothing sinister going on, although we kind of do know that there is, because obviously we have that kind of scene, that kind of brilliant kind of um, dream scene where she's kind of being laid on a table and uh, we see the devil kind of having sex with her. But if that was like some kind of, I don't know, hallucination on her part, where's the film really going you know it's, it's you know if everyone around if she has been kind of duped by everyone in a way i think we want there to be something quite sinister going on we want to kind of we want rosemary to be correct you know we we, we do kind of care for this character and we do want her to kind of like, not be kind of locked up in an insane asylum or something and i think what polanski does which is quite brilliant is he actually kind of gives us two interpretations of the film's ending because yeah, you know, we've had the kind of the whole kind of supernatural occult stuff going on. And all that kind of goes away when obviously Rosemary looks down and into the cot and she kind of cries that there's something wrong with the baby's eyes and the group of Satan worshippers casually kind of sit there sipping tea. And I think perhaps lesser filmmakers would have been content and no doubt felt justified to have kind of Mary grasp the, uh, sorry, Rosemary gra- grab the baby and just jump out of a window. And that kind of gives you the horror nasty ending, you know, perhaps that something like the omen would do or something but instead we get something completely different throughout the film rosemary is the picture of paternal dedication to her unborn child and although perhaps she was although the kind of the outcome of this pregnancy isn't what she was thinking is in fact you know something quite horrible polanski makes her stay true to her character rather than running away rather than kind of making a big deal out of it rosemary instead is decide to do something quite different it's one of cinema's greatest mindfucks, but the angelic Rosemary looks like she's just about to accept and rear possibly the most evil child on earth who will bring about the destruction of humanity. The bond of motherhood is simply something too strong for her to resist. Now, you think about that and the consequences of what she's about to do. And in a way, the film's kind of strange kind of twist for me was... You suddenly think, oh my God, you know, kill the baby, Rosemary. You know, you. she sort of almost becomes a villain. And I, I think that's, I don't think that's kind of too far out there to say it because, you know, I, I know it's a kind of the nature versus nurture thing, but I think she might be kind of struggling when, you know, um, her uh, partner in this creation was the Satan himself. But of course, one of the immediate comparisons you can make is obviously the story of Jesus, you know. You know, with Rosemary being this kind of mother figure. So, you know, and like Mary, you know, she's been chosen out of so many others for this role. And, you know, I think we have to kind of perhaps look at what was kind of going on in the 60s as well as to kind of why this film, I think, was you know, such a success and why certainly you could get away with making a film in which a kind of sweet, loving girl is impregnated by the devil and at the end of the film stands there looking over the baby with a kind of look of motherly love on her face. I think, you know, if you look at the 60s, it was kind of a great change, you know. Some, you know, perceived not to be the best. Free lugs, drugs, 
and a great deal of violence, both domestically and international. Perhaps it was the perfect time for Satan to come back and claim the earth. You know, certainly it was um, fairly. You know, if you go back and listen to the very first episode of the Twenty Four Frames cast, in which I talked about the company kind of, you know, films dealing with nuclear war, you know, that was a very real threat. And you know, Vietnam was certainly something which was um, greatly dividing the country. And I, I've often felt that. Rosemary's Baby is, is it's kind of a hopeless film in many ways. I don't mean obviously kind of in its technical, its filmmaking standards, but it's a hopeless film. You know, it is kind of bereft of any kind of joy. And viewing it this time kind of solidified that view. I think you can only look at really, you know, he's Polanski's other body of work really to kind of see that he's he's hardly an optimist. I mean, certainly Chinatown as well. I mean, God, you know, how bleak can you get in that? And looking at the characters, and especially Minnie and Roman, they are grotesquely annoying people, yet it's also quite funny to an extent. You know, I know Gordon won an Oscar for her role in this. I know I would contest it's eclipsed by a turn in Harold and Maud. The film crosses many genres as well, I think. And although I think you could classify it as a horror film of sorts, it doesn't use any kind of horror conventions, which is, I think, one of the things that makes it so thoroughly horrible. And... To me, I think this is it's it's his greatest cast because by making I think so much more identifiable, it becomes far more realistic in the eyes of the viewer. You know, how many times have you seen a horror ghost film devolve into stupid cliche messes with a payoff totally destroying what's gone before? I think arguably Rosemary's Baby actually reduces into a more personal and agonising story. That final shot of Rosemary staring down at a child with a look of motherly pride on her face. You know, can we kind of blame her in a way? You know, dare we sympathise with her maternal instinct? Is in that moment the film stays true to its course of being about a woman simply trying to do what is best for her child? As I said before, what we kind of know about Polanski now, it's hard not to kind of read too much into his work. Or I would sort of think it's kind of um, uh, slightly dangerous to go down that path. I mean, certainly one of the things you obviously when you see the devil raping an innocent, you know, it's a good allegory, but you sort of think to yourself, Christ, you know, come on, this was years before. And you know, I don't think it was something you know, in later life he was acting out or anything. But I think Rosemary's Baby kind of must come a close second to Chinatown and as his best work. The film is totally aware of its contemporary audience. I think, you know, Rosemary's kind of fashion is quite noticeable. You know, Vidal Sassoon was in there to do kind of kind of her hair and makeup and stuff. And the film does look like a fashion parade at times. And astute directors have a way of tapping into the psyche of the times and Rosemary and Guy could be like any of the young people watching it. You know, they're kind of idealistic, they appear like a natural couple having the same problems we all do, you know, ignoring each other, poor work life balance, etc, etc. Appearance wise, therefore, Polanski mirrors the audience who is most likely to be watching the film. The film was made well into the beginning of the Hollywood new era and I think Polanski is not interested in playing by the rules of old Hollywood. I think it's telling that Rosemary is the central character. Can you really recall films made prior to this to having such a strong female lead? And it's a horror film with a decidedly jazz influence scored from fellow pole Christoph Komeda. And there's an excellent documentary actually on the disc about his career and the fusion of jazz and more traditional horror cues make for a subtly eerie audio layer which of course complemented Polanski's visuals and one of the things I love about his work as well is that he's always been a director who uses longer takes to greatly unsettling effect the aforementioned door scene in The Ghost is being one of them and in Rosemary Baby there are several wide shots in the side of the inside the apartment with a character being blocked by either a kind of a door frame or a wall and I kind of love these little moments because you do find yourself um, kind of getting drawn into the scene and 
I, I know it's a phenomenon, something, it's definitely that my girlfriend does a lot, where she tries to look around the scene, and I, I do love it when it happens, because it kind of, the, the what you're seeing is actually making you physically react to it in a way which you kind of, you don't in a lot of other films. And I think it has a very voyeuristic feel to it, Rosemary's Babies, as certainly did um, The Tenant and Repulsion. You know, you feel like you're kind of intruding on this place a little bit, and there's something like that through. I think through the off kind of compositions of many of his shots that they, that you feel like he's actually hiding something from us, which he is. You know, he's hiding. You know, Rosemary's having things hidden from her, but you sort of feel like you're kind of getting in on the mystery as well. And the other thing that amazed me was the movement around the apartment was also quite striking. It never feels kind of constrictive by the kind of the way the camera moves, and this being a kind of pre-steady camera, I could easily say imagine how hard it would have been to achieve this. But best of all, I think, is the lack of showiness. You know, the, the, the rape scene, I guess, is kind of quite disconcerting. There's lots of kind of handheld stuff. It certainly you know, it stands out. Um, the film grammar changes a great deal during those moments. But for the most part, you know, it's there for a reason, basically. It's not just there to show off. But I think for the most part, he shoots it quite straight. And then there are those kind of like jumpy moments. And this all kind of, I think, you know, this lack of kind of going for the cheap thrills makes that ending so much more powerful because of and you don't see the baby as well you just see her reacting to it and that is all you need that's all the horror you need because you know exactly what she has seen looking back at her and I think that's the brilliant thing because you imagine it in your own head and again I think it's that kind of the film coming out the screen and getting into you and making you react that I think makes it work so well now director photographer John Fraker gives us a kind of a very bright and vibrant look to the film you know again i kind of go back to this kind of fashion thing it, it, it does look very good if you take stills out of it i think you know you could you know, put them in a kind of a in, a in an edition of vogue and as well i think the kind of the central performances are, are really what makes the film it's the same kind of for sunday bloody sunday mia farrow um is obviously the star of the show and i think she does a fantastic job as rosemary you know it's hard not to like this girl she's not annoying i don't think she's just this kind of you know young girl who wants to kind of do what's best for everyone around her and is really being screwed by the kind of the world in which she lives John Cassavetti apparently has quite a few frequent clashes between him and Polanski and you can easily imagine why you know here's this kind of young kind of director whose work I, I suppose if we, you know it kind of strips away any kind of artifice the kind of the work of Casavetti's and I think probably it, you can imagine it being quite hard working with Polanski and apparently they, there was a few times they had to be uh, torn apart from each other from battering himself but Overall, you know, everyone gives absolutely incredible performances, you know, obviously kind of, you know, Oscars were awarded in this case. And that's another thing as well, I think you have to kind of look at the sort of the the fact that this is a kind of a genre film to an extent, I suppose that's how it certainly how it was marketed. And, you know, for it to kind of uh, get um, Oscar attention, I suppose it's the same way in which we kind of think that somehow the kind of the Dark Knight or you know, the Dark Knight Rise or whatever have this kind of air of legitimacy about them by the establishment because they've been nominated for an Oscar. But I think it, it kind of probably meant a lot more then and I think it's something which, it, you know, certainly bear in mind as to the quality of this. The film begins with aerial shots of New York and the apartment where Guy and Rosemary are going to move to. And we always have kind of like a nursery rhyme type score going over the soundtrack. And I de indeed, I think it's a kind of a perfect way of looking at this film. Despite their kind of cheery tunes, nursery rhymes are some of the most violent and gory compositions out there. Rosemary's Baby is a bright, fashionable, modern film that juxtaposes absurd humour with terrifying human dilemma and matters of morality. A dark, urban fairy tale for a generation raised on Disney and shaped by cataclysmic social change from Vietnam to the ever-present threat of nuclear extinction. We are given our happy ending from one perspective, along with a real threat the path to human extinction has just been set upon.
Overall, I think it's a fantastic upgrade from any kind of standard edition um, DVD you might have had. I was really surprised by how good the Blu-ray was. And uh, so a, a brilliant uh, selection of extras as well on this desk, and I can highly recommend it. So my pick of the month, well, it won't come as much surprise. It was between Rosemary's Baby and Sunday Bloody Sunday. So I kind of thought long and hard about it, and I'm going to have to go with Sunday Bloody Sunday. I think... It, uh, Rosemary's Baby, I think definitely it's... I can't imagine there's many people out there who haven't seen it. And um, probably a great deal of you already own it. And I think you certainly it's one of those ones where when it kind of comes down in price on a Barnes & Noble or something like that or on Amazon, you certainly pick it up on Blu-ray because it's be well worth it. But I think if you want a bit of a surprise and something a little bit more challenging than you might have been used to, I think you should have a look at Sunday Bloody Sunday because I... It, I, it was a sublime film and it would have to be my pick of the month for October. So that's going to be it for this episode of the 24 Frames Cast. You can email me at 24framescast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at 24framescast and you can go over to the blog at 24framescast.blogspot.com. Many thanks for listening and I'll be in contact soon. Bye.